Biography of X is the new novel by this week's guest, Catherine Lacey. That should be an uncontentious sentence with which to begin a podcast introduction, except that the book we're about to discuss not only reads like, but is also structured like and referenced like a biography, and not a biography written by Lacey, but by one C.M. Luca, at least if the copyright page and author bio are to be trusted, and the text is peppered with archive photos and footnotes. All that aside for a moment, who is X? In many ways, this is, unsurprisingly, the central contention of the book, and not just the quest to unearth her origins and influences, the forces that shaped the celebrated artist known by a single letter, but also the question as to whether we, as biographers, as readers, as fans, as lovers, could ever really pin down who anybody is at all. But before I tie myself into any further knots, I'll just say that Biography of X is one of the most intriguing, compelling, and vertigo-inducing reads of recent years, and I'm very happy that Catherine Lacey joins us to discuss it today. Catherine, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to begin, um, when I was reading Biography of X, uh, the thing that kept coming to mind was this um, idea articulated, I don't know first, but certainly articulated by uh, Roland Barthes, when he talks about reality effects, uh, l'effet mm. du réel in fiction. So these are the, uh, the devices, let's say, a novelist uses to convince us um, or to, to make us f- suspend our disbelief and believe the novel we're reading is real. Now, when readers pick up Biography of X, they'll see straight away, as I mentioned in the introduction, there are quite a few of these things which might be termed uh, reality um, effects. So there's, Mm -hmm. as I say, the footnotes, there's photos, there's the kind of the general sort of way the book is presented. And yet pretty soon you also dive into something which is very clearly counterfactual, which I'm sure we'll, um, we'll begin, we'll come on to discuss at a moment. So could you begin by just talking a little bit about how you came to this, um, this way of presenting the, the story that you wanted to tell with Biography of X? Yeah, I love that idea of like, or I've been talking a lot, of, I'm teaching right now a class at Columbia, and we, I feel like we keep on coming back to this idea must just sort of be in the ether a little bit of um, like layers of reality in a in a mm-hmm. story, and there's things yeah. that there's aspects of any work of fiction or sentences that you could take out that function function as fact in the real world as we understand it, as mm-hmm. we live in it right now. And then there's things that only make sense within the world of the novel, and there's things that don't even make sense within the world of the novel. Um, and I haven't read um, Roland Barthes about it, but I should probably go and <laughs> brush up on brush up on that. But um, yeah, because there is, of course, you know, any kind of like first person narrator, you're trying to just, what you're trying to convince the writer of is not that this person necessarily existed, but you're trying, the voice just should feel human enough, right? Mm-hmm. So like, that's, for me, it's always been the starting point of like, just a voice that feels human. And it took me a while to, I knew, I knew kind of the world of, of the book, and I knew about X's life and everything really before I found how CM how the main character, how the character that's narrating the book um, talks. And I feel mm. like that that's kind of, sometimes I feel like that can be like a, it's a harder and more crucial um, layer of reality in a story mm. that it, for me, it didn't come immediately. I think like that um, there is this counterfactual, like I kind of took America apart and put it back together in a way, mm. um, basically just to make it so that two women could be in a relationship in the mid 20th century in America without it really being a big deal. I just, I knew that I wanted the book to be about a woman and then narrated about by a woman as well. I just didn't want there to be, I didn't want that the kind of like 
biography of a great man to be a part of it, nor did I want there to be a kind of like man in the shadow of like mm -hmm. a great woman and the kind of tension that I feel like that would, I feel like it's also like you, you start to sort of anticipate readers responses a little mm -hmm. bit. And it, to me, it felt a little bit like, um, if there was, if it was a heterosexual relationship, if there was a, a surviving spouse, um, like uh, telling the story of of their uh, you know of of their of their what deceased partner mm -hmm. I don't know I just like I was thinking about the way that um like what what kind of mindset that would put the reader in and also like what books I would be in conversation with mm -hmm. if it was a heterosexual couple anyway this is all to say that I just really I had to like rewrite American history just so these two women could be in uh, a relationship and also so that like lot. a woman mm -hmm, yeah I know <laughs> I didn't um you know, it, it wasn't my intention originally mm -hmm. to, to write any kind of, um, I've never, I don't really read books. I haven't really read many books that are, that are like that. I know they exist. They just haven't really appealed to me. And mm -hmm. I really, I really, it was just to, um, it was really just a tool to try and create mm -hmm. the setting that I wanted to work in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. interesting to think that this relationship was um, essentially the, the core of the novel and the sort of the, the seed of the novel um in a way because that was that was another question that i was kind of having which was essentially um i guess how much you allowed yourself as a novelist when writing this book to know i suppose about what was going on so what i mean by that is when we read it the his the layers of history feel so convincing the all the, you know the characters we're dealing with feel so real and it struck me that there must have been a tension between Catherine lacy the novelist who has constructed this quite sort of elaborate counterfactual America and embodying the voice of CM Luca who is who is in that and, and to whom you know she she doesn't know everything and it seems quite normal how did you how did you manage that tension as a as a writer I don't really know I mean I think in general like I like you kind of stumble into problems and then you have to figure out a way to solve them mm -hmm. and I think I think it's it's interesting I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about how the it really was CM's voice that sort of came last and there was mm. a lot of kind of world building and and collecting of ideas and collecting of little bits of of history that I knew I wanted to weave in mm. um and aspects of different artists lives that I that I wanted to make a part of the book um but I mean part of part of the subject of the book as I kind of discovered it over time was that CM the biographer she spent these years with with her wife X um completely overwhelmed by X's life and mm -hmm. completely kind of living in the shadow of it so much so that I don't think she even realized she was in the shadow of it. It was just right. so, it was so complete. And he, and I don't think I saw that when I first started working on mm -hmm. the book, I didn't think necessarily that, um, you know, I really wanted CM to be, to have her own thing going on, to have had her mm -hmm. like own appeal to this very strange, um, you know, mysterious artist, but I guess I didn't realize how much she would have needed to be sort of like enthrall and sort of deify mm. somebody in order to um, write their biography after they died. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We're definitely going to come on, I think, to talk about that 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 relationship because it's 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 fascinating as a reader. You get to know both CM and X sort of quite profoundly, and also I think there's a strange kind of uh, lack of knowledge you you end yes. up with, which is uh, which. Um, but we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. But I just want to rest with that idea of this kind of reconstructed America. Um, perhaps could you, uh, to readers who haven't yet read the book, could you introduce 
just a little bit this uh the the state of america as we find it in uh, in the novel yeah so i i i'm not quite sure like what is in there like in terms <laughs> of like because i don't it's not a book about that about the division but the mm -hmm. division the division of of america has something to do with with x's origins and so there's a kind of moment where the mm -hmm. bi the biographer cm has to kind of explain give some like kind of a brief sort of history encapsulation. But as I saw it, um, I was thinking of the way that um, the like history of American political thought. And I think we, we kind of like look at America as it is now and it's like this red state, blue state tension, this um, the way that Christianity has been kind of absorbed and distorted by the American project and then liberalism and neoliberalism is what it is and i think we just think that that's just a given you know there's no mm -hmm. other way it could be there's no other way it could have gone and it's just like it's a fact of american history or something mm -hmm. when i don't like when you really when you don't even have to go back that far in american history of the history of political thought to find that there were moments where we were much more diverse politically and mm -hmm. there were multiple different political parties at the end of the 19th century and somebody like Emma Goldman, who yeah. is a staunch anarchist, yeah. had gave these rallies and t hundreds, thousands of people came to them. She had huge, she was a household name practically. Yeah. And then, I mean, the end of her life, she had been deported from America and, and sort of died in some obscurity compared to like where she was when, at the height of her mm -hmm. career. And so I was just thinking like, there was this moment at the end of the 19th century where we started to, um, or American sort of um, sort of the average American turned away from workers unions. There was actually a mm -hmm. lot more support for workers unions and and ideas that would be seen as very you know socialist or very left leaning now. But at the time, they weren't really seen that way. They hadn't really been properly vilified by the powers mm -hmm. that be. Mm -hmm. But there were a number of different things that that happened at the end of the, of the 19th century that started to push us in a direction of distrusting workers' unions and mm -hmm. workers' rights. And um, one of them being the Haymarket Affair, which happened in Chicago in 1888. And I started thinking about if that, if that it was a protest, basically, it was a demonstration mm -hmm. of, I can't remember like which organization now, um, but like the police basically incited violence at that mm -hmm. at that demonstration. Several people died and it was national news. And it was a moment where support for workers unions kind of went on the decline. And there was, a, mm -hmm. I think, a kind of um, constriction away from anything seen as too radical or too much mob rule or too much mm -hmm. like, um, you know, distrusting sort of like the boss. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I just thought about like if that if that hadn't gone that way, maybe maybe we could have like that momentum could have lasted into mm -hmm. the 20th century. And then I thought if Emma Goldman had sort of her ideas could have come a little bit more mainstream. And then I imagined her as like uh, the governor of Illinois at some point and then becoming a part of FDR's cabinet. And then, and, you know, but it the more I thought about it, this was all, you know, to just make a make an America where two women could just be in a relationship uh. <laughs> and it wouldn't be a big deal. <laughs> so then I was like starting to really get away from the original thing. And I thought, well, also it's not like America would have become some sort of utopia if we had had mm -hmm. like, you know, I imagined not with, with um, gay marriage um, becoming federal law. I thought also there would be some other things that would come mm -hmm. along with that. If we're, if we're seeing relationships differently and families differently, maybe we would see, bunch of other things differently. So I, I thought mm -hmm. of like, 
basically the North becoming much more liberal and um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, more focused on workers' rights, more like um, kind of addressing institutional racism at, a, at like an earlier moment and, and a lot of conversations happening in a, a sort mm -hmm. of different space. Um, but then, I, so then I thought, well, there's just no way that could really happen. I thought about like, there were lots of people in America that, that in the early 20th century that would have seen Emma Goldman's pol like political ideas as extremely threatening. So even mm -hmm. if her support had continued to grow, that would only make the kind of backlash and people that were against her that much more vehement, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I basically all this led into the idea that um, maybe the South would have, or in this, in this book, the South does, build kind of form a coalition of southern states that are in opposition to the way they see the rest of the country going and they build a wall in some secrecy over the course of the, of some years um around the south while the rest of the, the country and the military is embroiled in um world war ii mm -hmm. and then suddenly it's just like we are separate you know like mm -hmm. we're we don't have it we secede you know and that's and that's it and then the the south becomes a kind of um, fascist theocracy that's there's uh, is extremely insular in the same way that like North Korea is from South Korea. And I read mm -hmm. a lot about like North and South Korea to sort of like make to kind of think about the way that, that um, like how uh, like just what just to kind of build some of the um, uh, like the political infrastructure, the mm -hmm. sort of um, the details of that world I, I drew a lot from North yeah, and South Korea yeah. and also East and West Germany. Yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a couple of things that I think firstly is that sense. And I think it applies to both the kind of, I guess, the macro story of the, you know, the the political construction of the United States, but also um, the the sort of the micro story, not that it's micro in the book, of um, CM and X. Yeah. Um, there's a moment that CM writes, um, how closely our lives drift drift past other lives, how narrowly we become ourselves and not some adjacent other, someone both near at hand and too and much too far away. And it, it, it made me think that there is this kind of one thing that the book sort of embodies and sort of brings to the fore is this kind of arbitrariness and this kind of fragility of history, our personal histories, mm -hmm. but also wider histories, mm -hmm. how how one small or smallish effect or chance occurrence can completely sort of skew um, so I'm going to use my Back to the Future <laughs> terminology here, but skew the timeline off in a completely sort of unexpected way. And there's something I think just, well, as a reader, but also as a person that's quite kind of, yeah, vertigo inducing and quite kind of nausea producing about that thought. Like, so yeah. how, how the solid things in your life feel so arbitrary. But then there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of freedom in that idea too, or like you, you, you know, we get used to like, oh, I always do things this way. Like whether mm. it's the way that you eat something or don't eat something or the places you go or the people you know or whatever, or how you talk or how you present mm -hmm. yourself. And then the more you kind of look at it, you're like, well, why Why is it that I think this is the only way that I can do this thing? Mm -hmm. Or why is it this is the only like type of relationship I get into? Or why is this the only, like, why do I think this is a necessary part of my identity or my mm -hmm. life or something? And I think sometimes you know, it can, it can be vertigo inducing when you think of, oh, if I hadn't, you know, if I hadn't like received that letter that day before I got on the plane, I would have never met my wife. And then, you know, like my children mm -hmm. wouldn't exist. And it's just like, ah, like what, where would I be? But I think that, you know, that's, 
you know, who knows what other lives didn't, didn't happen to you. Right. But I think it can be useful when you just sort of, when you, when you use this idea to kind of scrutinize arbitrary, small aspects of your Mm. life. Um, and I wish, I wish like political leaders and people that have a little bit more control over the kind of macro way that our lives are organized could also think that way, because I think there's a lot of ideas that are sort of baked into the system or we are assumptions that are made by people that are really in power and they they're not thinking they're not they're not thinking creatively about what what already exists the superstructures mm-hmm. that are already there why are they there or what are they actually serving there's lots of like laws on the books that are for you know they were built and intended for people that have been long dead mm-hmm. and we still live under them you know yeah and that sort of um i guess that sort of uh it's sort of encrusted belief that sort of oh certain things are just too big or too um too sort of yeah encrusted to change until yeah. but we all know those points in history where the system gets overturned and exactly. you know for for good or for bad but like when uh you know nothing nothing could change nothing could change and then suddenly everything changes and yes there there isn't that recognition often that right right, right. Yeah. the idea that oh we can't have you work from home we're, we're we have to come to the office right. or whatever then the pandemic happens turns out yeah. everyone can work from home that just creates a whole different set of you know almost everyone and that just creates a whole different set of of problems but it's not it wasn't that we couldn't right i think the mm-hmm. pandemic has already shown us a lot of that kind of like um the way that we have our lives set up they don't have to be that way at all and and yeah, now yeah, like yeah. the way that we we've gotten used to living it also doesn't have to be that way it's like mm-hmm. everything is i think infinitely more flexible than we want to see it yeah what one of the things i really um appreciated about the way the the southern territory is constructed in in your book is that I think in a certain sense, perhaps unsurprisingly, you sort of invite the reader to make comparisons with the United States as it exists today. Right. Um, right. I mean, you talked about kind of a fascist religious theocracy and people can think, ah, yeah, yeah. And then I think you also <laughs> then set us traps and you sort of disrupt that. So the sort of the, yeah, you, you don't set up direct parallels. Um, you sort of, you, you create this kind of slow mutation of this part of the country, which feels organic, like it sort of it matches perhaps certain uh, preconceptions we have about the the divisions in the United States. But then the consequences of that, the the effect it has on the North, the effect it has on certain uh, people that we are familiar with, and we'll come on to to talk about, are perhaps kind of slightly unsettling to the reader. Was that was that something you had to kind of consciously keep yourself in check about? Is not to sort of present too direct. Uh, sort of parallel or a parable of uh, sort of uh, contemporary American society. Right. Yeah, I don't want to, right, if you have your mind completely made up about something and you're writing a novel to prove a point, mm-hmm. I think that then ine- inevitably it becomes polemic and it's it's no yeah. longer fiction. Like for me, fiction is a, it's a way to create a space to think about a set of questions. It's not mm-hmm. a place to go to get you know, be delivered to some sort of final verdict or yeah. to receive um, kind of preformed, pre-digested ideas. Um, yeah, so I, I always keep that in mind, but I mean, like, inevitably, like, one's ideas show through and, like, yeah. and then also more overtly, like, I think um, there is, well, I think I ended up not having this thing fabricated, but there is a part of the book, there's a part of the part, there's a part of the book that's about the Southern um, Territory that I use some real names of some real governors of Mississippi that I particularly mm. despise and <laughs> cast them in a pretty unfavorable light. 
And at one point I wanted to, um, there were a number of, of like, there's a number of the images that are in the book that I had fabricated. And I wanted, I, at one point I was, I think it was almost in there and I kind of still want to do it somehow, but (laughs) I I wanted there to be a set of um, posters that were um, kind of like propaganda posters that had Mm. the the faces of some of these like real governors um, in like on, (laughs) on the poster, but sort of like, uh, you know, propaganda basically with their faces on it that with some ideas that actually I feel like they wouldn't be completely in disagreement about, Uh but when, but shown to their sort of maximum, (laughs) <laughs> um expression it's maybe like a little bit unflattering yeah but and did the publishing company lawyers uh <laughs> nix this no <laughs> nobody was against that no i think i think i think politicians are fair game to yeah you know to parody and to whatever mm-hmm. they're public they're public figures yeah. of a particular sort but yeah that was not yeah we did have yeah endless like legal reads uh-huh. <laughs> actually it's, it's interesting with me. this whole kind of Murdoch Fox News thing that's going on at the moment, where I'm learning the difference between defamation laws in the US and in uh, yes. well, the UK. And it's sort of, you could get away with a lot more. <laughs> in the state? In the state, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, yes, I've learned this. Yeah, there was it's, some, um, there was some, I'm, I don't know if I should say it exactly, but there was, there was a name in the, that's in the American version that's not in the UK, in the British version hmm. because um, uh, of defamation, defamation law. So it was just, uh-huh. a, and I have nothing against this person, <laughs> like this real person that exists. It's not, um, but just the way that he was framed in the book had to be, uh-huh. I had to change his name in the, in the okay. UK edition. Yeah. Okay. Well, well now I'm going to track that down. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and you've just convinced people listening to buy both copies now. So right. That's also exactly. a great sort of bookseller <laughs> technique. Just the, the last thing on the, the Southern Territory before we move on to um, uh, sort of X and her relationship with CM. Um, there's just one moment where um, where you write the original American conflict between idealism and extremism was being acted mm-hmm. out again. Mm-hmm. Um, I and didn't that, write that. I, that's did oh. you find that that's that's actually it is in the oh, book. St- Yes, it's presented me. as if I if I wrote it, but it it is a quote. I and I think that's from one of the books that I read that was sort of about. Politi- Do you know what page that was on by any chance? Actually, I I have it. I have a fuller quote here. And it's, sorry, I should have okay. read it here. The writer Susan okay. Howe. Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wait, it's Susan Howe in the book, but I think it's actually. Um, but if that part is from, I think is from this book called this book called the the Metaphysical Club by Lewis. Um, Min- Minad. I've never known how to say his last name. Actually, I'm pretty sure that quote comes from this book, uh-huh. um, which is I drew. I it was a big education for me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, I well, just to say, I'm going to leave all of this in the podcast because I think this is actually it shows part <laughs> of the the sort of the fun of reading biography of X as well. It's sort of like um, any because any line that's in there. I mean, it's often happened that reviews quote and they say, "Oh, you know, this is a line from the book," but mm-hmm. it's like you have to go back and and make sure that. Because it's not necessarily in quote marks. <laughs> yes. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like there's, but there, everything is credited at the end that is mm-hmm. not directly like my own. Uh-huh. You know. But 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 on the, on that uh, with that idea though about the original American conflict between idealism and extremism yes. was yes. being acted out again, like that it struck me. Yeah, actually, one thing that we don't necessarily uh, consider is that there could be a fundamental conflict at the. Um, at the sort of the root of uh, society's problems, but the way that manifests itself could there could be sort of no, it's not necessarily the way it's manifesting itself today. In fact, this is just one of sort of right. many possible um, expressions of the the sort of the fundamental um, philosophical problem with a, with a country. And so was right. that sort of for you and 
from your understanding of what, what you've read around it, that sort of, for you, that is the underlying fracture that is a lot of the cause of American um, problems in, in different levels between idealism and extremism. Yeah, when I came across that sentence, wherever precisely I did, I think I felt like, oh, that that feels really like not just true to to you know the end of the 19th century, but mm-hmm. like true to today. I mean, there was just another school shooting like two days ago here in mm-hmm. Nashville, and it it's just it just it, it exposes this like this this deep hypocrisy that that mm-hmm. comes out in in that tension between idealism and extremism, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that there's this, the Republican party really, I think believes themselves. I mean, and and maybe not every single Republican, but I think a lot of the Republican politicians truly believe themselves to be like protectors of some kind of moral purity of America Mm -hmm. and American families. And, but their, their idea, like their idea of where that is coming from it really just depends on which way the wind is blowing. And mm. by wind, I mean money, you know, with the gun mm. industry is so huge in, in this, in the States at this point, it's billions and billions of dollars that um, of course they can, you know, they don't yeah. actually want to, the number one, the number one cause of, of uh, childhood death in America is gun is guns or firearms. Mm. And these like Tennessee lawmakers are That's going right. after, you know, drag queens reading books to children. It's just like, ah, oh. and also like the fact that, like that, that seeing seeing a man dressed up as a uh, seeing a cisgendered man dressed up as a woman or in in kind of feminine attire somehow that's necessarily sexual to these adults. Mm. Where like children don't see anything as inherently sexual. They don't see like you know they don't see Disney movies about falling in love and think about mm-hmm. sex. They're thinking about like a different thing. They're thinking about love. They're thinking about connection. They're thinking about I don't know, a million other ideas, you know, but they're not thinking about sex. They're not there yet. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sort of the level of, um, of projection that's, yes, um, that's the level on. of projection is really astounding. Yeah. And actually, I mean, that kind of brings me on to something, um, that I was going to talk about, about this sort of, um, I guess as we get to know CM and as we get to know X, there does seem to be this kind of constant interplay, I guess, um, acknowledged, I think, by CM of, uh, the the sort of the the parts of the story she's telling that are factual mm-hmm. and the parts of the story that she's telling which you know come from her position as both biographer but also wife right of um of x and that's that seemed to be a sort of a very interesting um sort of i guess tension to have at the at the heart of the book is sort of between trying to paint a factual uh picture as possible while also recognizing that it was going to be uh shaped by emotion shaped by memory as well and shaped by personal experience yeah i think i'm like always drawn to biographies that are written by somebody who almost shouldn't do it you know Mm -hmm. and i think i've Mm -hmm. never i mean i've never read a biography of like written by a sort of aggrieved surviving spouse but i uh-huh. would i would love to read that biography um <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a certain amount of there's a certain kind of knowledge that you have of somebody that's that's personal that feels that could feel relevant to like trying to describe their life but i think a biographer has to be they have to be it's i think that i think the role of a biographer is really strange because i think you must be mm-hmm. kind of completely in love with your subject to the point where you you want to spend 10 years or like of yeah. you know and um 
an unknowable amount of time researching mm. your life and trying to figure out a way to shape it adequately. Um, but then you also need to be objective enough right. so that you can kind of organize the information and and have a kind of clear head about the way that you're mm -hmm. that you're writing it and not like um not letting your sort of admiration of this person warp the the facts of mm -hmm. of what you're trying to get across um so there's like there's a book by joshua rifkin that i keep on bringing up every time i'm doing interviews um about uh Cy twombly the artist Cy, Cy twombly mm, yeah, yeah and a lot of Cy twombly fans are like kind of chaotically in love with Cy Twombly's <laughs> paintings. I mean, I count myself among those. Like I, I had a, I had basically, I didn't have a word for it then, but I had like a Stendhal experience the first mm. time I saw Cy Twombly's work mm. in person. I think I was 20 or 21. And I went to this museum. I went to the Rothko Chapel, which was what I had been looking forward to seeing in Houston. Mm. And I was kind of underwhelmed by the Rothko Chapel and then mm. kind of feeling dispirited and strange about that. I ended up wandering into the Cy Twombly Museum, which is nearby. And had a complete mm. breakdown. I mean, I had never seen any of Twombly's work in person. I didn't know anything about his biography. I didn't particularly feel, I had seen his, I had seen images of his work and had not really understood what the big deal was about. But there was mm. something about seeing all of, all a kind of almost an entire, you know, life's work in that museum. There's like a little bit mm -hmm. from every part of his life. And it, the last painting really kind of gave me this, Stendhal experience or Stendhal syndrome. It was like, I, I had, it was almost like a panic attack. I didn't understand what was mm. happening. Um, and anyway, so then like I got really into Cy Twombly and I read, tried to read about his life. There's not that much out there about it. And then when this, I saw this biography was coming out many years later and I, and I read it, what happened when, when, I mean, Rivkin also sort of had that experience with Cy Twombly's work mm -hmm. and we're one of, you know, I'm, I'm sure thousands, if not, tens of thousands of people that that mysteriously had that experience with with Twombly but he had to kind of try and be objective in the way that he mm -hmm. was you know writing about Twombly's life but while he was working on that biography the the estate the Twombly estate decided they didn't want him to do it anymore and this right. was after he had sunk years into the project and he really couldn't turn around and it, it mm -hmm. becomes a little bit of like a cat and mouth thing with him and the mm -hmm. estate and some of his emails with the estate become a part of the book. And they're like, <laughs> they're, it they're really, they don't like the kind of angle that, that Rufkin started mm -hmm. to take. And I, that's, that's a really interesting interplay to me. And um, yeah, I just wanted to, I just, I just like the idea of kind of doing a biography badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of yeah. her, that, that, I think that one's done very well, especially given how much he had to go up against, but um I sort of like the idea of seeing somebody fail to write a biography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's interesting. So you, um, you know, if you if you had not written this book, if you would, if if it was a sort of a a, a genuine historical artifact, and the the real C.M. Luca had written a biography of X, would you think as a reader you would consider it a failed biography? I mean, I guess it just depends on what your definition of a biography is. Mm, I went to right. I went to school for creative nonfiction, and many of my right. teachers were very much like of the old school of you know, like I think one of my teachers had written a, a biography of, of um, Arthur Kessler. Um, mm. I could be wrong about that, um, but I know my teacher Patty O'Toole wrote a book about one part of Theodore Roosevelt's life, and it was like one of right. these you know magnificently researched there's an argument and it's like perfectly sculpted, very properly, yeah. you know, 
formatted. Um, and a, a lot of my teachers there were sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. New Yorker writers from the 70s and and I think had a kind of certain idea about what, like what proper journalism was and kind of proper yeah, yeah. long form journalism. And I thought that that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. And then mm-hmm. I just realized over the course of writing, one, I'm not actually very well suited to be that kind of writer. Mm-hmm. I'm not as organized in this moment of my life to be able to, in any past moment to be able to like write in that way. <laughs> I would like to, I think it's like a skill set that I would like to grow into, but it's like, I, I really, I haven't been there yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I just kind of been drawn to, to books that are a little bit more uneasy and a little bit more mm-hmm. leaning into the, ne- the necessary sort of subjectivity of, of um, trying to portray anyone's life. Or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. even a fictional work, you know, it's always going mm-hmm. to be full of subjectivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I suppose the question about it being like a fail biography was slightly mischievous because one of the things I think we 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 come away from the book with is almost a sort of the sense, maybe not sort of confirmed, but that maybe the maybe all biographies are destined to fail. Yes, in, in some respect, like this kind of, and and what sort of X embodies, and I and I realize we still haven't come onto X, and maybe that's going to become the kind of the sort of the the Tristram Shandy birth of this um, of this podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll get onto it eventually, um, but is this sort of sense that like it, trying to kind of take a life in all of its complexity and all of its strands and all of its uh, sort of multifarious um, uh, elements and constrain it to a page. You sort of, we get a feeling while reading this book that it's kind of a fool's errand, in fact. I think all books are, you know, like I Uh. think everything, I think at least, I mean, maybe all books in general, but I think definitely all novels, there's the intention that you have. And and I think Mm -hmm. if, if the, if your intention, you know, I don't know, I think I, I always, I always feel like every book is is some somewhat has to be a failure has to be like in mm-hmm. conversation with the way that it necessarily is going to fail. Right. And, or at least that's part of like, I think my way that I um, think of the architecture of a book from the inside, mm. of course, you don't want like a reader just to be like, Oh, that was a complete failure. <laughs> that's not the <laughs> feeling that you want to produce, you know, <laughs> but, but like, I think that, um, you know, if you're not setting a kind of goal that's unreachable, then why are uh-huh. you bothering to, to do it at all, you know? Right. Um, yeah. My name is X and my name has always been X. And though X was not the name I was given at birth, I always understood before I understood anything else that I was X, that I had no other name, that all other names put on me were lies. The year and location of my birth no longer pertain. Few know that story, some think they know it, and most do not know it and do not need to know it. From 1971 to 1981, a youthful decade, I suspended the use of myself. That is, I was not here. I was not the actor within my body, but rather an audience for the scenes my body performed, a reader of the fictions my body lived. If this sounds ludicrous, that's because it is ludicrous. It is ludicrous in the exact same way that your life is ludicrous. You who have convinced yourself, just as nearly all people do, of the intractable limits of your life. You who have, in all likelihood, mushed yourself into the most miserly allotment of what your life can be. You who have taken yourself captive and called it living. 
You are not your name. You are not what you have done. You are not what people see. You are not what you see or what you have seen. On some level, you must know this already, or you have expected it all along. But what, if anything, can be done about it? How do you escape the confinement of being a person who allows the past to control you when the past itself is non-existent? You may believe, as it is convenient for you to believe, that there is no escaping that confinement, and you may be right. But for a period of years, I, in my necessarily limited way, escaped. Still, you may insist, such an escape is not possible. Indeed, it is not possible. However, attempting the impossible is always possible, always imperative. My attempt lasted 10 years, and though it served me then, it no longer serves me now. I am, in one sense of the word, myself again. I have admitted to this. I am asking you now to understand that those years, a period I will refer to as the human subject, are not to be understood to be years of my life, but years I was exempted from my life. I was a part of my audience, just as those who spoke to, touched, listened to, or otherwise interacted with me were also a part of the audience. Is there anything more tragic than seeing an empty theater before the performance begins? The stage is so clearly alive when naked, but when the actors, the performers, the dancers suspend their disbelief, then we, the audience, we pick up the bill. Rarely do we all get deluded together. But I wanted that, a total ongoing delusion, a work of art that overtook a life so completely that no seams could be seen, not even by the self who sat suspended inside the body, as that body became the stage, the actors, the ticket, the script itself. I leased my body to a theater beyond my direction. The director was the world itself, the possibilities that world presented. Rehearsals occurred simultaneously to the thing itself. For this reason, I am requesting that anyone who has played an unwitting part in the human subject to understand the boundary set around those years. The play has concluded. Go home. Here, in the detritus memorializing the human subject, you will find various documents and props of the characters who comprised the human subject. Some characters wrote books of varying quality. Some made films, paintings, music. Some of them made nothing but trouble. Most of them, in fact, spent most of their time trying to find something to do. Any memory a person may claim to have about additional events that purportedly took place within the human subject is lying. What I reveal here in images and text and film and artifact is the full extent of the human subject. There is nothing more. There was no con, there was no crime, there was only fiction. The names, the activities, the voices, the history, all of it a fiction. Are you following? Those people were not people. The self escaped the body. The body went around with me in it, but I was not there. I abstained from myself, just as you too may on occasion abstain from yourself. What a relief, what a relief it was. So let's let's talk let's talk about X. So um, so you said like the the voice of CM was uh, one of the last things that came to you, and you had the structure. But was was the kind of the the character of M or the the work M's works or what what was it was that oh, M sorry of X that was that something that came to you quite early? Was that one of the first kind of uh, sort of thought, foundational yeah. elements of the book? I thought about I thought about what she would have made like what I thought of, I mean you know I basically put myself in CM's shoes so much mm -hmm. I mean I gave the CM CM Luca has the same initials that I do mm -hmm. and I think that's basically where the parallels end but mm -hmm. I like to kind of <laughs> implicate myself in some way from the very beginning you know and uh -huh. if if it seems like that's where I should be sort of sitting in the book 
Mm. Um, and yeah, I thought about, I thought about X from CM's perspective and I thought about what, what kind of work that she would have made and maybe how maybe X's wife would have understood or not understood Mm. some of it or responded to or not responded to some of it or been in awe, like what were the parts of X's life and sort of persona that she would have been the most in awe of? And, Mm. and, And kind of like thinking about it chronologically, like what appealed at first? What did she distrust at first? What, what did she kind of come to understand about her over the course of the relationship? Mm. What did she come to kind of lose an understanding of? Mm. And yeah. And I thought about kind of the, the work being seen from the perspective of, of kind of looking over the shoulder of the person making it mm-hmm. and sort of knowing that like, Oh, this body of work came out of this moment where she was actually completely unhinged and everybody thinks mm-hmm. that it's about this, but it's actually about that. And like, um, yeah. So I thought, I thought about that. I thought about X from her perspective so much so that I really didn't think about who she was or why she was mm-hmm. there until the end. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think that an original draft I did of the book that I finished earlier than I thought I was going to have a draft finish. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was really bad because it was, it was more of a proper biography. It was more mm-hmm. like, it was more kind of exhaustive about every kind of year of X's life, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it suffered because X doesn't actually exist. And so I had built up this image of X in my, in my mind and, and I was writing the biography as like a kind of fan or somebody that was like amazed by her, you know? Yeah. But when, a, when, a, when a, a reader of a novel picks up a book, they don't know the character already. Like that's why they're mm-hmm. reading the book. But when you pick up a biography of like, you put, you want to read the David Bowie biography or something, mm-hmm. it's because you're already interested in David Bowie. And so you pick up, you pick up the book with that sort of, you already have that seed of an inherent interest and in an inherent mm-hmm. kind of desire to know his life. Of course, you don't have that when you when you pick up a novel. And I had just kind of miscalculated the gap mm. in between the reader and and kind of getting into the fictive world as it as it was. So I had to rewrite it with with CM kind of making the argument about mm. frame, just framing the book a little bit differently. Yeah, and then I think yeah, yeah. kind of um, underpinning these different sections and different people that she interviews with you know, maybe not like a, a pure biographer's perspective, but more of like more of the kind of grieving spouse had to, the, mm. the, her grief had to become a bigger part of the book than I thought at first. Yeah. 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 I hadn't really factored that in. I hadn't really thought about, I, th- I hadn't mm. thought about her grief at all. I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> you know, and yeah, never, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess sort of retrospectively as well, there's sort of that sense because the grief isn't sort of, explicit throughout the book but it's definitely this kind of I guess this kind of rumbling sense underneath that is informing the way she is interacting with the people she's interviewing or the way that she's um regarding the memories or, or the the works from uh from her from her time with x but it, it's yeah. interesting because you said um that you uh you know you were thinking about what sort of what might have first appealed to uh cm about x um and I think one of the things is kind of interesting as a reader and makes it quite um perhaps ring very true in a way is that we don't actually necessarily get that much of a sense that cm really knows <laughs> what yeah. it was about x that that appealed to her there's this sort of there is this this attraction and they they build their lives together and yet a lot of the time at least i was asking myself like 
why 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 are they like i i feel the pull but there was no sort of you know it's not like oh great sense of humor or you know they they shared hobbies or something like that there was there was something kind of ineffable i guess about it but i think that's true of like of every relationship and every Mm. like love i think that it's really it's really hard to describe to someone else why you're with someone i think that Mm -hmm. like when it when it is really working and um I don't know. You just want to be there. There's a part of, there's a huge part of it that I think that is really difficult to understand, you know? Yeah. I definitely have had the experience of like dating people that I'm like, wow, this person's amazing. And I find them like, basically I have no complaints, but I'm not mm-hmm. in love with them. You know, uh-huh. it's just like, well, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just very clear. It's like, we're just not in love, but yeah. I like them a lot. And then somebody yeah. else comes along and you can't say that they're like quantifiably better than the other person, mm. but you're in love with them. And you're just like, well, this is just different. I don't know. I don't really, I, I find that, I find that kind of completely baffling, just uh-huh. completely baffling, <laughs> you know? And there's the extra element that we get with CM and X as well is, um, well, actually, uh, CM writes at the moment um, about like early on, like in the first few days when they um, they met, they just spent an afternoon together. And she writes, though I'd been unsettled by my afternoon with X, I did not yet believe I was in love with her. And then this is, I think, the really crucial thing. I only felt that I had been changed, though being mm-hmm. changed by a person is far more dangerous than simply loving them. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense, of course, you know, there is this thing of like the, the personalities coming together and there's something there. Yeah. Even if we can't necessarily say what it is. But it also seems to be like something important about the moment that X entered into CM's life. And maybe it comes back to that um, arbitrariness or not of our lives and history that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of I'd like forgot about that line and about that kind of, you know, there's like so much of like you write a book and then it's like I haven't really read it. (laughs) <laughs> in like a year and a half do you know what I mean and I've like forgotten yeah, yeah. a lot of the details and things and like, like what people are responding to because I don't really want to read it again yeah. but like um <laughs> like I've read it too many times but like that I think I've forgotten about that way that she saw her and the way that she saw mm-hmm. felt herself um having been altered I think mm-hmm. also it's just there's so much in like when people come together all the other things that are happening like you meet someone and you think they're great or they think you're mm-hmm. great or there's like a spark or something, but you don't know, you don't, you don't know the predicament that they're coming out of. You don't know that yeah, yeah, actually yeah. their mother is, you know, has cancer and is dying in their living room. They haven't told you that part yet. And so like necessarily like that part of their life would be kind of affecting the way they're presenting themselves to you and mm. maybe like the way that they're the, the kind of particular kind of vulnerability they may have in that moment or something. I don't, that's just like an arbitrary example mm-hmm. but like, um yeah there's so much that's sort of like un- unseen in those particular mm. moments and yeah 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 so what of the things um that makes i guess x quite a slippery character to, to us as readers but also i guess to to cm and the people around her is this the fact that i mean you know we we know from the start that she kind of landed on this name x and like you know people can imagine that wasn't her kind of her given name when she was born right. and before she arrived at this point she has uh lived under several identities uh some of them concurrently and so mm-hmm. she's had this kind of this massive identity which kind of bloomed out from her uh you know her birth name and then maybe kind of contracted into the uh the the x that she um she decided to end up with does that yeah. in a sense connect with the the sort of the impossibility of of writing a biography that like 
okay, in this case, it's kind of it's made explicit that there's sort of these are uh, you know when you're trying you're trying to make one book about someone who presented a multiplicity of selves, but in fact, that's the same perhaps problem of trying to do a biography about anybody is that there's yes. sort of none of us are are one particular self. Yeah, there's that. There's also just. I don't feel particularly connected to my name. I and I mm. like changed my name a couple times when I was a kid and I mm. also like the name that I publish under it is my given name but my last name was my given middle name but that name mm. is like a kind of matrilineal name where it goes back like many many generations on my mother's side mm. and it's like all through her mother like grandmother's grandmother it just like kind of um goes that way anyway mm -hmm. so I feel like it's a little bit my name and I feel like a little bit a part of that family in so much as I feel a part of like any family yeah, yeah. um I don't know and I, I like I've kind of people have called me different things at different mm. moments and I think Catherine is one of those names that can be short to so many things so sure. just about I don't know contextually I feel like I've been called so many things that like nothing really feels like it belongs to me anymore uh -huh. and that's fine I feel fine about it and but I also like I have so many friends that have change their names in transition. And I think that's like, mm -hmm. that's a kind of amazing moment of, of reclaiming your identity as well. Um, and I think she just, I think, you know, part of part of the reason that X has all these work, operates under these different identities is that she had to, she had to, it was a survival, like a mm -hmm. very literal survival method, you know, for escaping the Southern territory. But at a certain point, it's like, I think she just wants, at home you know yeah. and and yet nothing is going to nothing is going to work and so so the ridiculousness of naming yourself mm. x comes up you know mm. yeah yeah so. yeah I, I i'm conscious that we're um we i haven't got a great deal of time left so i'd like yeah. to um uh and i the thing is just probably coming across i could speak about this book for hours but there are a few <laughs> things that i do want to to touch on specifically um let's say i guess the subject of art and artists and also because part of X's production is uh, she's not just a visual artist but she's also a writer um, mm -hmm. and I, I I got a sense that there was a uh, in both X and in CM a certain um, I don't know if cynicism is the right word about artistic production but certainly a um, I don't know a, a lack uh, a determined lack of reverence to um to the concept of art and the uh and the concept of the the artist which again perhaps in the kind of in, in the in the in the the space of a kind of a biography format probably feels quite um quite sort of subversive in a sense yeah i think well some of my feelings about the art world i think kind of come out where like mm. like on the one hand like i i like really I almost was a visual artist, like I, or I don't know if I'm, I feel very close to the project of making objects, making images mm -hmm. to express kind of ideas that can otherwise be expressed. And I think yeah. that's a beautiful process. And I, I feel very, very much um, in conversation with, with visual artists and, mm -hmm. and installation artists and conceptual artists, but there is the matter of the art world and the kind mm -hmm. of like shysterism that I think exists there. And I, um, I think I like the idea of X sort of using the art world as a tool to mm -hmm. both to express things. I think she really wanted to express, but also just to manipulate. I mean, I think there's a part of her mm -hmm. that was so wounded in so many different ways, so young that 
the rest of her life is kind of uh, kind of indirect revenge, you know? And yeah. I think that the art world is, you know, I think a pretty easy target for mm. someone's like kind of chaotic revenge. Mm. Yeah, And I yeah. like these artists that are kind of um, a little bit dismissive or angry towards the audience mm. a little bit, even though I think that there's, you know, you can critique that kind of art as well as being um, unkind or um, maybe narcissistic in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I, I still I still find it to be kind of um, just uh, intellectually interesting, if if not uh-huh. other things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think from a perspective of a sort of, um, I mean, I'm thinking... I because of my my sort of uh, the contact I have a more sort of writing here but yeah there's definitely the sense of the writers I find most interesting are not the ones who sort of hold up writing and books as some sort of sort of sacred almost kind of semi kind of religious activity but ones who always feel not exactly kind of disgusted by what they do but just to sort of but recognize that kind of a lot of it is sort of spent down sort of uh let's say kind of in, in the trenches, kind of getting mucky and being disappointed and never, as kind of you referenced earlier, never quite living up to the the sort of the, the original conception in you have in your mind, but doing it anyway. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, f- I feel that way too. I don't, I don't feel like make, like making books is some kind of sacred thing. I mean, I, yeah. I personally feel um, a kind of sense of attention when I'm actually in the process of writing that, that is satisfying mm. to me in the same way that I feel when I'm reading a book that I really want to be reading, I have this kind of like attention and it makes the rest of the Mm -hmm. world vivid in the same way that I think um, if you're religious and you're having a moment of like deep spirituality or like you're feeling very connected to whatever outside the world entity that you connect to. um, Yeah. I think so. There's like a, there's an aspect of it. There's an aspect of it that I do think is really sacred, but I think it's not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole thing yeah, is still yeah. like here in material and kind of like in the world and a little bit like you know like who i don't know it's it's partially a business and it's partially like uh-huh. a conversation and it's partly like a bunch of things mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah yeah you mentioned uh use the word attention there and that was one thing i wanted to to talk about like so we we talked about the kind of counterfactual thing of this kind of alternative united states but there's a, i suppose another element to the counterfactualism is this sort of there are moments when we come across uh artists and writers and people whose whose names we will recognize or whose yeah. names we we think we will recognize but have been kind of altered in this uh this kind of skewed world that you're that you're creating um and yet when we one, one might think okay this is a fiction so you know Catherine Lacey is giving words to for example David Bowie or you know mm-hmm. or, or Patti Smith or something like that and yet when we get to the end of the book what we see is the kind of it's meticulously referenced not only by C.M. Luca, but also by Catherine Lacey. And so mm-hmm. to sort of, there's a real sort of, there's within the fiction, there's a fidelity to the the people you're writing about. So I guess this is kind of a two-pronged question. Like, first of all, is it a different activity for you, sort of the counterfactual United States, and then kind of the counterfactual individuals and artists? And secondly, um, why was it sort of important to you to um to remain faithful to these people even though you were transposing them into an alternative reality for want of a better experience. I mean some of that is just almost like a snow globe you know where it's like you change one thing and kind of everything else sort of scatters mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain way mm-hmm. and another is that um I think that I think that like 
Mm, I think that I, it's my feeling that like stories and ideas are just sort of shared that I don't, mm. I don't think we don't generally, I'm sure somebody else like in the last few years has written a book very similar to this one, you know, and maybe it's not going to be published or isn't like, we won't know about it or maybe we will. Yeah. Or like, I feel like you kind of see the same ideas sort of pop up around uh -huh. the same time. And that makes me think that we're kind of, we're more like human beings are more of a kind of collective organism and ideas mm -hmm. are occurring because the context of the culture is making it possible to have that idea at a, at a given time. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like if I, if something's changed, you know, in American history and say there was a different kind of fallout, there would be a lot of the same ideas and a lot of the same people and mm -hmm. a lot of the same things would happen just out of order. And, and then yeah. also, so there's this kind of collaging of um, real things that were said, but putting them in the mouths of other people. And then mm -hmm. like, you know, or changing the context in which it was said or changing who it was said yeah. about or whatever. Um, and then part of it is to just creating the kind of um, uh, verisimilitude of a biography. I wanted there to be a different voices and I can to some mm -hmm. degree alter the way that I write to make it seem like it's a different person. But I think mm -hmm. you can only, you can only get so far with that. You know, like I do, yeah. I do like write in the voice of other people in this book, but I did, I also wanted to bring in, truly other people's voices, other people's mm. writing, um, both to be in kind of CM's mouth and also in other mm. people's. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's just, uh, just, uh, just before we finish, I should say on that subject, um, I was not aware until um, after I'd finished the book, actually, uh, about Connie Converse. I had, a, mm. I thought this was somebody you had made up and yeah. I just kind of want to thank you for introducing me to this extraordinary artist. She's completely incredible. She's like, yeah. I, I felt really like, I found her music, I don't know, 2015 or 16, when a bunch of people had started listening to her again. And and then I just had been listening to her thinking that I don't, I didn't know anything about her biography. And then when I looked it up and I found out that she had disappeared in 1974, it was like a friend of mine had gone missing mm -hmm. or something. It felt so personal. And I I, I was, I, I cried. I was like, I was really upset, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like I understand her so much through her music. And there's like certain people that you can have that kind of connection yeah. to. And I don't know. She just happened to be one of them for me. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, that is all we've got time for. Um, as I said, I could have spoken about this book for, for hours uh, yeah. with you, Catherine. It's been such a pleasure to talk about it today. Um, obviously, Biography of X is available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online shop, or from your local independent store, wherever you may be based. Um Catherine, it's been such a joy to talk to you today. Thank you for, Thank for being you with Thank you so us. much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.